Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics and honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin and The Weaponization of Everything, which is recently out. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today, Mark. Oh, it's always a pleasure. All right, great to have you. And I should mention Mark has very generously agreed to be my guest on this podcast once every month or so. So listeners now have the opportunity to hear his insights on a regular basis. Uh, And his appearance today comes at a potentially crucial juncture uh, in the crisis over Russia's military buildup near Ukraine's borders and its sweeping demands for restrictions on NATO membership and deployments. Of course, there have been several junctures that have appeared crucial since this crisis began late last year. But just to try to recap briefly, uh, on Friday, uh, the leaders of the Russia-backed separatists who control parts of Ukraine's Donetsk and Luhansk regions abruptly issued announcements of mass evacuations to Russia, claiming without evidence that the Ukrainian government was planning an offensive in the coming days. Now, these announcements uh, and... and, um, they then ordered uh, call-ups of uh, men of military age uh, in, in both of those regions. These announcements uh, of the evacuations were uh, almost certainly recorded two days in advance, um, uh, according to metadata on the, on the, um, on the statements. Um, they followed a development last week in which the Russian parliament's lower house, in which the Kremlin-controlled United Russia Party holds more than a two-thirds majority, appealed to President Vladimir Putin to recognize uh, the territory claimed by the Russia-backed separatists in Donetsk and Luhansk as independent countries. Putin took no action on this uh, and suggested he would not recognize them, at least not right away, in order to uh, make a further push for implementation of the Minsk Accords, which are agreements aimed to resolve uh, the the conflict in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and resolve it in the way that Russia interprets uh, these Minsk Accords. Um, now, uh, over the weekend, uh, Belarus, uh, north of Ukraine, announced that joint exercises that have brought many Russian troops to that country would continue past uh, their scheduled ended date, which was yesterday. This added to fears of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, uh, and But on the other hand, um, yesterday... Uh, there emerged a tentative, at least, agreement for uh, U.S. President Joe Biden and Putin to meet um, at some point, probably uh, towards the end of next week or, or later. Um, but it's conditioned on uh, the, the idea, sorry, the U.S. says this this meeting could go ahead if Russia does not invade Ukraine in the meantime. And from what the U.S. Uh, has been saying, that's a big if, because U.S. officials have been saying uh, for some time that there could be a, a Russian invasion any day now. Um, Mark, I just uh, there's there's sort of a lot going on here, um, and it's uh, I'll just ask you this: what, what's going on? It's obviously hard to predict, but it does look like we're seeing, uh, or I'm sorry, but d- does it look like we are seeing the final preparations uh, for? A Russian invasion. 
or maybe a, a fresh push by Moscow to resolve the, Don, the Donbass conflict in its favor, or maybe both or neither? Well, I mean, this is the thing. Does it look like uh, an imminent invasion and on a massive scale? Yes. Do we know if that means that that's actually what they're planning on doing or that they're still hoping to be able to intimidate Kiev and the West into making the kind of concessions that they want? That's still possible. We're, we're being told that, you know, battle plans have been distributed and everyone's ready. Mm-hmm. But even so, you know, right up to the... 11th hour and the 59th minute, Putin can change his mind. And that's not unusual. You know, there are all kind of cases in the past where massive forces have been mustered and then a deal was was struck. So it's really very difficult to know. But the interesting thing is the fact that the Russians are still, you know, clearly willing, indeed eager to talk, suggests that this is not just simply a pure farce just while they sort of build up their forces, because essentially they've got their forces there. And if there is some kind of massive attack, well, the fact that they were willing to have a a sit down between Sergei Lavrov and Liz Truss, the British Foreign Secretary, that's not really going to count in their favour on the kind of grand scale of things. It's actually going to be the sites of whatever it is, Kiev burning or thousands of refugees on the road that will sort of set how how this war is is interpreted so i mean i think and again maybe here i'm being ludicrously optimistic that actual military operation is still plan b but on the other hand we may well be getting closer than ever to the shift down from plan a to plan b but i think in that context we do need to think about, shall we say, some of these sub-apocalyptic options, which clearly were sort of foreshadowed by the whole business of these uh, Duma bills requesting that uh, Putin recognize the uh, People's Republics, quote-unquote. Right. In that, you know, it, it, it does offer a way that, it, you know, if, if Putin wants to do something dramatic but doesn't actually want to trigger the kind of, you know, total sanctions and indeed long and bloody and open-ended conflict, which a full-scale invasion would mean, then the option of recognizing these pseudo-states and then quickly reaching some kind of uh, agreement that allows Russian peacekeepers to be deployed, it would still obviously trigger some kind of sanctions, but not as much. It would signal pretty much an end to the Minsk process, but really we have to ask actually whether or not the Minsk process is as dead as dead can be anyway. And it would anyway sort of shift the nature of the the, the relationship, but also the conflict between Moscow and, and Kiev. And in many ways would be a kind of uh, defeat for Russian policy. Mm-hmm. But again, it would be a way of, as it were, turning the defeat from being a a long-term stalemate into something that looks a little bit more glorious, even if, in fact, it's it's no better for Moscow. That's very interesting. I mean, I I guess one thing that might be on the Kremlin's mind is, um, you know, if they do uh, recognize uh, these separatist-held parts of Donetsk and Luhansk uh, as countries um, and then go in there, uh, you know, as you say, it would set set up a, a kind of a different situation. And maybe, you know, it seems possible that Putin would sort of take that, uh, as you say, kind of 
defeat, but but cast it as a victory, and then think, well, I'll do something more later. But of course, I I really have no idea. I mean, what strikes me, uh, two things that strike me, you know, about what you said. Uh, one is that it definitely, you know, there's been, even though uh, Lavrov and other Russian officials have said, you know, f- for weeks that well, you know, NATO, the U.S. likes to drag things out. Um, and that there's there's a limit to the you know time for diplomacy. You know, it it seems to me that it's you know that, that Russia's been clearly kind of you know every time there's a critical juncture like this, uh, going with the the idea that okay we're still ready for more diplomacy. Certainly the U.S. Uh, is as well. Uh, so so um, you know how long can you go without uh, without that changing? Um, and the other thing is. Uh, I, I just, I, I think uh, in the last few weeks and particularly days, you know, Russia's obviously been putting a lot of emphasis on the idea of, well, Kiev just has to uh, fulfill, implement the Minsk agreements and in the way that Russia interprets them. Um, but but as I think you suggest, I mean, sort of the chances of this happening, of Kiev implementing them in the way that Russia sees them, which is uh, a way that would give Moscow big leverage over Ukraine, um, you know, it's not that likely. So then you, then you, the question is, what's next? Is it a big invasion? Is it uh, recognition? Um, more diplomacy? Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it seems up in the air. Um, I guess, I guess I'd just ask, follow up with the question, I mean, how much do you think the the idea or the the prospect of a, of a summit, an actual summit between Biden and Putin, uh, might change, I guess, the calculus in the Kremlin. I mean, if a summit is going to happen, then I think they'll presumably hold their fire until that happens, just to wait and see if there's anything substantive that comes. I can't see them being in a position in which they feel they have to move beforehand and, and they, they can't wait an extra week, two weeks, whatever it'll take. So, I mean, in part, this is, of course, actually, let, let's be honest, this is the West trying to draw things out long enough that the Russians decide that actually it's not worth it and, and they and they de-escalate. The same way as this uh, you know, very sort of innovative information campaign that we're seeing constantly saying, oh, we think they're going to attack this day, we th- they're going to do a false flag or whatever. Right. That is as much as anything else intended to try and pre-bunk various sort of Russian gambits and get them to think, oh, no, let, let, let's give it a moment. Um, I mean, it's interesting that uh, Zhirinovsky got in on the act. Uh, he's he's predicting tomorrow, the 22nd of February, for, for reasons symbolic, right. 22nd of the 2nd of 2022. Um, so, you know, everyone's getting into their sort of picking of dates And I think this is the point that actually the Russians, on the one hand, they're clearly aware of not wanting to to leave this going on because Putin keeps mentioning it. But on the other hand, so long as there is a prospect that they'll get something that they regard as as an acceptable deal, whatever that may be, then they have no reason not to. they, They can keep this force in the field for some time to come, despite the fact that it's uncomfortable for a lot of soldiers and it costs a fair amount of money. This is the thing about authoritarian regimes. When they want to do something, they basically can do it. So this may well be open-ended. Mm-hmm. And also, I think it's worth mentioning that in terms of options, I mean, at the moment, we think of it very much as this kind of binary of you know, full-scale invasion or not. I mean, if one talks, you know, just again, go, go back briefly to, to the um, 
recognitions that are option. Mm-hmm. I mean, that can be done in a, in a low intensity and high intensity way. A low intensity way is just simply use the way, okay, you, you basically fix the current borders and you have them protected by Russian soldiers, which obviously will have a certain impact. A high intensity way is you say, well, because the evil Ukrainians are constantly attacking us, I mean, that may not actually be, you know, true in technical terms, but in propaganda terms, who cares? Right. I mean, it's clear that the Russians are definitely ramping up the propaganda machine at the moment. But anyway, because of the evil Ukrainians and the threat of genocide, etc., we need to have a security cordon, we need to have more defensible borders, and therefore it could be associated with a pushback to sort of fix the borders in, in, in slightly different locations, and also to use that as an opportunity for a demonstrative um, exercise in Russian military firepower, just to make the point that exactly, you know, if, if Ukraine messes with, with Russia, things can, can get very bloody. So this would be a kind of combination of signaling as well as as they're actually trying to change the facts on the ground. They do have all kinds of options. And even if this is stood down now, if there is not some kind of resolution, then who's to say it's not going to you know, rehappen in a month, six months, a year's time? So I think that one of the key issues will be, yes, of course, there is a real desire on the part of not just Kiev, but also the West to deal with this current crisis. But unless it's just simply yet another can being kicked down the road, one also has to think about a resolution. And to be perfectly honest, a resolution is not just simply about threatening sanctions and hoping that that's enough, because clearly it, it's not enough, mm-hmm. you know there may well be mileage in, well, it won't be Minsk three because the Ukrainians have made it clear that they won't go back to Minsk. But, you know, Erdogan has offered, so maybe it will be Ankara one. Right. But, you know, some some new peace process, because when it comes down to it, one way or the other, if this conflict is to be re- resolved, then either Ukraine has to actually say the, the Donbass region is dead to us. It is no longer part of Ukraine. In other words, they need to pull the trigger or else then the region will have to be in some ways reintegrated. And that almost certainly will mean some kind of special status. If one looks at how conflict zones get reintegrated into polities, I mean, it, you know, it is a painful process. It involves talking to deeply unpleasant people and making certain compromises that you'd rather not. And resting in the fact that you hope that in a generation or two generation or three generations time, all the various conflicts will have been ironed out. And that your system is strong enough to be actually be able to cope with that. Um, I mean, again, this, this is the thing. There is a difference between dealing with this crisis and resolving the problem. And ultimately, if we don't have some moves towards resolving the problem, we're going to be back here. Yeah, back in uh, around the NATO summit later later this year. And I mean, well, I mean, just simply the fact that Russia could could you know basically Russia can always escalate this way. Right. It's a question of actually, you know, what is going to make Russia feel both less willing to and also less interested in. Right. All right. So that's uh, and, and I, you know, I think uh, many agree that um, this this crisis is probably here to stay for quite some time. Um, now, I'd just like to move on. Um, you know, one, one thing that this uh, this. Uh, the, the Russian threats um, to Ukraine and its demands of the West have have done is is taken some attention away from Russia itself and what's happening inside Russia. Um, so the second question I want to ask is about Alexei Navalny, 
who's now on trial in prison um, and could be sentenced to over 10 more years in prison in the latest, uh, in a series of cases he dismisses as politically motivated. Now, this trial is one of a number of domestic developments that I'd say are getting less attention than they otherwise might uh, due to the situation surrounding Ukraine. Mark, for many years, the Kremlin seemed to be wary of putting Navalny behind bars for an extended period of period of time. He was often jailed you know, for several days, um, but uh, he was he was not uh, imprisoned for years, um, presumably because the Kremlin feared a backlash and protest. Now, that changed um, in, after his return to Russia uh, in January 2021, 20, um, and he's now in prison for uh, two and a half years, which works out, I believe, to the uh, middle of 2023. Um, but with this new trial, he could be in prison for more than a decade more, potentially past the next two presidential elections due in 2024 and 2030. And we know that Putin has the right now to run in those elections. Now, has something fundamental changed in Putin's thinking and the Kremlin's thinking about the challenge that Navalny poses? I don't think so. I think at the time... I mean, I, I wasn't by any means the only person who was suggesting that actually whatever the initial sentence that was placed on Navalny, there's no way this system was going to let him come out before the 2024 presidential elections. Mm -hmm. And I think this is just simply the, the way they decided to handle it rather than slapping some, you know, particularly extensive, well, we'll see, even more extensive sentence on him the first time round. This is a, an, an exercise in, I would call it salami slicing, but in this case, it's pretty much half a salami, of putting him in prison, waiting a while, seeing what the situation looks like, and then particularly at a point when everyone is distracted, and you know, you're perfectly right. At the moment, one would be hard pressed to believe that anything was happening in Russia <laughs> that wasn't related to the, the current uh, Russia-Ukraine crisis. Um, you know, at a time when when everyone is distracted, then basically they'll they'll as it were bring out the the next stage in their campaign against him. And it's not, I think, that the thinking about the challenge he poses has particularly changed, though they presumably are calculating the fact that they have dismantled his entire sort of apparatus mm -hmm. across the country. It's more that uh, from their point of view, I think they definitely have moved into an era of precautionary repression in the sense of it's not that they necessarily feel that they have a real specific need to keep Navalny behind bars. It's more that they have no reason to let him out because he might be a problem and therefore play it safe, keep him behind bars. And it's that kind of approach, I think, that is behind, you know, so much of the repressions we've seen. They decided to sweep the board clean from their point of view well before the 2024 presidential elections. They don't want to be arresting people. They don't want to be dealing with protests right on the eve of the elections. So anyway, they're getting all the bad stuff done quickly. So then the hope, and again, it may well be this is be totally derailed if things do go into an escalatory mode in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But from the point of the view of the people who you might say have been tasked with the political campaign, so that's Vino and Kirienko in the presidential administration, that's Mishustin, the head of the government, I think the plan was precisely to then have a couple of years of high profile moves towards addressing people's day to day concerns with you know, infrastructure developments and such like to try and kind of reconcile a clearly rather disgruntled population. 
And just from their point of view, the last thing they want is someone like Navalny out there stirring things up. So just, just, you know, lose the key, leave him behind bars until you really don't think that he can be of any more danger. Hmm. I wonder uh, if, uh, I wonder whether those guys, Vino, Kivienko, Shustin, are kind of hoping uh, there is no um, big escalation in Ukraine ahead of the elections. Um, but uh, we'll see. Um, I mean, I should mention on that, sorry, just cut in, but absolutely. actually, I mean, we are seeing a few little signs of very, very cautious discontent. I mean, we've already seen it from within the security apparatus, particularly sort of the middle rank and retired figures. Um, you know, there was this, the now notorious Ivashov letter uh, right. from the sort of chair of the uh, Union of, of Russian Officers. Mm-hmm. Um, but but generally, there's, there's, there is also a sense that there is dissatisfaction with the way things are going, not because they necessarily have moral or ethical problems with what's happening in Ukraine, but because inevitably, if there is a war, that will mean sanctions, that will mean people coming home in body bags, and that will make the job of the political technologists mm-hmm. and the economic managers that much more difficult. But of course, they're still going to be expected to produce the results come come 2024. So, I mean, I think that you know there, there is this really clear sense that from their point of view, the the cadre of Siloviki, the cadre of security types are that seem to be able to sort of really mustered around Putin and really at the moment seem to be shaping policy. Mm-hmm. Their interests are different from those of the civilian technocrats, and the civilian technocrats are being reminded of just how insignificant they are at the court of Tsar Putin. All right. Well, that's uh, extremely interesting, Mark. Um, We're running out of time, and we'll have to wrap it up. Thank you very much for joining me, and I hope to talk to you again uh, in the next month or so. Always a pleasure. All right. I'll be back next Monday, and please keep an eye out on Friday for my Week in Russia newsletter. Thanks for listening.